Good afternoon, and thank you for watching this virtual lecture event. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. We also offer the opportunity to take a single course without having to pay an entire semester's worth of tuition costs. One can also audit such a course at a much less cost. If you're interested in learning more about us, please visit iwp.edu. Dr. Mara Kodakiewicz holds the Kosciuszko Chair in Polish Studies at the Institute of World Politics, where he also serves as a professor of history and teaches courses on geography and strategy, contemporary politics and diplomacy, Russian politics and foreign policy, and mass murder prevention in failed and failing states. He's the author of Intermarium, The Land Between the Black and Baltic Seas, and numerous other books and articles. He holds a PhD from Columbia University and has previously taught at the University of Virginia and Loyola Marymount University. Dr. Hodokiewicz, the floor is yours. Well, thank you very much for your kind introduction. It's business as usual at the Institute of World Politics. Our talking heads are on standby to entertain you, amuse you, and hopefully to share with you things to ponder. Today, I'd like to talk about the First World War. The more I study World War II, the more I'm convinced that it is the fault of World War I, which truly continued 20 years later, for it was an unfinished conflict for a variety of reasons. I will focus on the intermarium. However, uh, aside from uh, a, uh, lecturing about the lands between the Black and Baltic Seas, I, I would like to refer to some general facts concerning the First World War to construct a context. It will be a series of lectures, so please bear with me, and I will uh, commence by translating and, and reading a few quotes regarding the Great War and the Revolution, because I have decided to treat them together, 1914, 1921. So here is a first quote from April 1856, Count Zygmunt Krasinski's Poland leading uh, romantic poet wrote to his friend, Count Jan Zamoyski, no, my dear, good people will never do anything for us. There shall pass many years of torment and horror, the like the world has never seen. Our nation will suffer horrible torture such torture that nobody has dreamt about. However, after many, many years, there will be a great war in which all states of Europe will take part. And the war will take place in our country. And this country, everywhere, will flow with tears and blood destruction, fire, depopulation, all sorts of torment will afflict the country and our nation 
and will surprise will surpass anything that that uh, the poles have suffered but then god to punish good people and for his own greater glory will order satan to restore poland and the very people who had destroyed her will be fighting on her dying members tearing and clawing at one another bragging about who has done who will have done more for her resurrection believe it or not it's april 1856 predicting world war 1 and the revolution and incidentally these are just two sentences or three sentences that I attempted to render into English uh, in a convoluted romantic prose. A second quote pertinent to the Great War and the Revolution comes from Viktor Sukhenitsky, a professor in the interwar period at the uh, uh, University of Vilna in Poland, and after World War II, having had survived the Gulag, Viktor Sukhenitsky ended up at the Hoover Institution, Stanford, California. So this is what uh, he wrote. On the eve of World War I, the existence of both the former Commonwealth of Poland-Lithuania and the stipulation of the 1815 treaty was completely forgotten. The Western frontier of the Russian Empire was considered legitimate, was considered legitimate and Russian domestic problems were considered to be of no internal, international importance. Finally, oh, next there is a quote by Russia's uh, prescient prime minister, Sergei Vite of October 1905. The Russian Bund, rebellion, mindless and pitiless, will sweep everything, turn everything to dust. What kind of Russia will emerge from this unexampled trial surpasses human imagination. The horrors of the Russian Bund may exceed everything known to history. It is possible that foreign intervention will tear the country apart, attempts to put into practice the ideals of theoretical socialism. They will fail, but they will be made, no doubt about it, will destroy the family, the expression of religious piety, property, all foundations of law. All foundations of law. This is October 1905. Then Sir Edward Gray, British Foreign Secretary, in August 1914, remarked, the lamps are going out all over Europe. We shall not see them lit again in our lifetime. Johann Bohler, a German historian, averred that due to the training and the commitment to the cause they were fighting for, the Polish units sometimes displayed a higher morale 
than their comrades in the imperial armies. Nevertheless, their symbolic value and often heroic war record notwithstanding, their deployment had no significant influence on the outcome of the war. Be that as it may, this motley assortment of Farajanist forces, which all four themselves claimed to represent the Polish nation, in reality mattered little before independence was achieved. Over the course of the Great War, the overwhelming majority of Polish-speaking men able to carry arms were peasants who were drafted into the imperial armies. And although they shared a primitive form of national identity, the attachment to the language, religion, towns, and microculture, their attitude towards the formation of nation states after the Great War was hard to predict. And here is the last quote from Prime Minister Lloyd George, May 13, 1921. Without waiting for discussion between governments, the Polish population raised an insurrection and put us in the difficulty of having to deal with a foie accompli. That is the state of the case. It is, complete, it is a complete defiance of the Treaty of Versailles. It may be a bad treaty, it may be a harsh treaty, but the last country in Europe that has a right to complain is Poland. In military sense, the First World War developed according to a rather predictable model. Its basic shape emerged at the very beginning of the struggle. In Western Europe, virtually immediately, a war of attrition commenced. In the East, however, we can discern both the elements of the war of attrition in the trenches and the war of maneuver, a very dynamic one. Following initial offensives from the middle of September of 1914, the paradigm of the war was set. The Germans pushed into France, but a stalemate ensued. The Russians were tranced by the Germans and the Austro-Hungarians by the Russians. Next, the Western powers and the Germans attempted to, attempted to uh, uh, break the impasse. The Germans were compelled always to help their ally and the Russians endeavored to turn the lack of war to their benefit. And this sort of a cycle of death would repeat itself for the next four years in the West and even longer in the East. As a result of the political, economic, and social crisis triggered by the, the, by the war, by the slaughter of the war, and this includes universal hunger, failure of the state, and the Red Revolution, three empires collapsed, first Russia, then Germany, and Austria-Hungary. The most horrific results 
issued from the descent of the state of the czars into a hurricane of revolution and civil war. The long-term and short-term results of this catastrophe were absolutely apocalyptic. According to a leading historian, the civil war which tore Russia apart for nearly three years was the most devastating event in that country's history since the Mongol invasion in the 13th century. Unspeakable atrocities were committed for, from resentment and fear. Millions lost their lives in combat, as well as from cold, hunger, and disease. As soon as the fighting stopped, Russia was struck by a famine such as no European people had ever experienced a famine Asian in magnitude in which millions more perished. Meanwhile, Western powers, apparently victorious, bled themselves nearly to death on the Western Front. This was coupled with a uh, general loss of the will to excel in life. Depression set in, collective depression, lack of optimism. Both these pathologies characterize the European peoples until this very day. As a result of the disaster, England, France, Italy, and other nations had enough. They, their elites and their people experienced collective psychological self-paralysis. They became passive and incapable of true dynamic leadership. Only the United States can fulfill this kind of a role. But America, following World War I, preferred to retreat into isolationism. Whereas the West was mired in a malaise, the East was subject to total chaos. The war, or more precisely, wars and revolutions, continued until 1923, when Greece finally gave up its pretensions to Anatolia and it yielded to triumphant Turkey. And the Lithuanians grabbed Memel, which was a, a chunk or a coastal chunk of the territory of the former Second Reich. To a degree, apparently the revolutionary fever in the East, coming from, uh, uh, starting with uh, Bolshevik Russia and ending in Germany, subsided. The revolution appeared to have subsided. A leading historian, I'm 
the leading military historian, John Keegan, set up a, uh, issued a sad verdict as far as the first global conflict is concerned. He wrote, the legacy of the war's political outcomes scarcely bears contemplation. Europe ruined as the center of world civilization, Christian kingdoms transformed through defeat into godless tyrannies, Bolshevik or Nazi, the superficial difference between their ideologies counting not at all in their cruelty to common and decent folk. In a short run, at least the Poles had something to be happy about. Likewise, other successor states, including Czechoslovakia, Romania, Yugoslavia, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. Free Poland emerged from a sea of blood of a global clash of world powers. The price the Poles paid for the fight of the giants on their lands was horrific. One seriously and correctly talks about bloody losses among the soldiers, but a lot of the civilians was, un 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 was not unviable. As a British military historian, Prit Buttar put it, the people who had suffered the most were those who had no national army serving their cause, the Poles. Treated with disdain by Germans, Russians, and the Austro-Hungarians alike, the Poles could only endure through a cold winter in their shattered towns and villages and hope for a better future. This opinion concerns the beginning of the war, but its poignancy should also apply to the entire period of conflict in the intermarium, including Poland. But we should also add that aside from the Poles, there were other civilians from the lands of the old Commonwealth, Ukrainians, Belarusians, Jews, and others. Civilian population experienced not only mass economic exploitation, curbing of their liberties, forced obligations, including uh, forced labor, but also diseases and hunger, as well as massacres, pogroms, and executions, including as part of a paranoid spy mania that afflicted all sides, in particular, the Russian one. In addition, we must remember that most civilians as a rule were interested in and displayed solidarity with their own ethnic group. There were no more imperial societies, Habsburg, Hohenzollern, or uh, uh, Romanov, there were ethnic groups, and each looked after their own. 
And the soldiers of the battling empires treated each group in a sense separately. This incidentally reflected nationalities policies of everyone participating in the conflict. We should also add that whereas the destruction at the hands of central powers, the destruction at the hands of uh, the armies of central powers took place mainly as the result of activities, military activities at the front, which were ordered from above, mostly at the highest level, for instance, a artillery barrages during the Austro-Hungarian counteroffensive in Galicia in 1915, a, the losses sustained at the hands of the Russians usually reflected robberies, arsons, rapes, and executions, which tended to have their sources in a grassroots initiative. That means very often lack of discipline and complete disregard for civilians on the part of Tsarist uh, soldiers. Nonetheless, independent Commonwealth would not have arisen without the crush of the three empires which occupied her territories. We changed the status quo from slavery to freedom. One needed war and revolution. The slaughter in the West weakens central powers, leading to their implosion. In the East, Russia was the one who suffered most. Let's look at the uh, context of the great struggles in the East. It is indispensable to understand the mechanisms of the shaping of Polish independence and the independence of other successor states. Let us stress that in 1918, the Poles on the battlefield had very little influence on the fate of their motherland. We should remember, therefore, that most Poles, over three million, served in the armies of the partitioning powers. Until 1918, the military effort of brave but tiny, semi-autonomous Polish units is only important as a symbol and as a potential nucleus of the armies of the Commonwealth. But at that point, it wasn't really clear that, that uh, uh, it was going to be resurrected at all. The way to the Great War was paved with uh, constantly 
increasing conflict among the great powers. They faced each other, the allies of the Entente, Great Britain, France, and Russia on the one hand, and the fighters of the central powers, Germany and Austria, Hungary on the other. The formulas informing those alliances were very similar in a technical sense. The mobilization of one of the member states automatically demanded the mobilization not only of other allied states, but also of the opposing side. There was actually no de-escalation mechanism in the system of alliances. Once mobilized, they had to go to war. They didn't know how to stop. War plans were rather simple. Everybody expected a short war. Everybody planned an attack. Everybody was convinced about a lightning victory for its own forces. Germany hoped that with one blow, based upon the so-called Schlieffen plan, it would defeat France by outflanking its forces. The plan entailed the rape of the neutrality of Belgium, which automatically would prompt an English intervention, which, however, according to Berlin, would come too late only after the fall of Paris. At that point, the English would be easily pushed back into the sea. Following the victory in the west, the Second Reich was going to turn to the east, defeat and push Russia back. Meanwhile, despite the fact that Vienna was uh, essentially interested in uh, punishing Serbia only, Austria, Hungary was supposed to uh, take up on itself the full weight of the Russian army attacks. In the initial period, of course, the central powers were hoping to force Russia to conclude a separate peace and not to conquer the empire of the Tsars. At first, the combatants, both sides, have very limited and even moderate war aims. However, as the intensity of fighting progressed, as the uh, uh, dead mounted in heaps, and as the time passed, the powers radicalized their demands and their small allies also began to propose increasingly tougher conditions for peace. Post-war plans thus became complicated. Some of them even entered a realm of fantasy. This in particular concerned 
the East. Let us remember also that post-war plans underwent a certain evolution reflecting relative success or its lack at the front. For example, as far as the so-called Polish question is concerned, England and France initially recognized Poland to be the prerogative of Russia. And they generally did not interfere in what they came to believe to be internal problems and questions of St. Petersburg. And the Tsarist government, as far as the Poles, limited itself to superficial promises and declarations. Same goes for the central powers. After a time and a changing situation at the front, the approach to the so-called Polish question changed. The initial stance not to alter anything as far as Poland became after a while untenable. Berlin held the decisive voice in this matter. Even if the German government was not too unsympathetic to the prospect of territorial acquisitions in the East for itself, as long as the war was not definitely won or the separate peace with Russia excluded, it considered it inopportune either to accept any annexation program or even make it public. However, consistent German success on the Eastern Front caused the growth of imperial appetite and the abandonment of the original moderation in terms of uh, future gains for Germany. Very soon, the three empires began to try to outbid themselves as far as Poland. From the very beginning, Vienna supported something called the Austrian solution. Its popular variation envisioned the joining of Galicia and the Congress Kingdom in a Habsburg monarchy, perhaps separate or perhaps a, uh, constituting a, a, an integral part of the empire, which in this way would um, turn into a tri-national empire, not only uh, Hungarians, but also the Poles would become pillars of the empire, along with the Austrians. The Germans at first ignore such plans, but after a while they began control, uh, they began uh, countering them with their own ideas. Finally, they simply took over the project of the Polish state, appropriately truncated a 
with territories even even lesser than uh, the Congress Kingdom as Berlin satellite. St. Petersburg moved from the realm of uh, foggy promises to a, a bit more concrete autonomous con concepts, but in a best case scenario, agreeing to the separateness of Poland as a puppet state of Russia, however, increased in size by the territories of all three partitions. Let us stress that the Tsar never issued any unequivocal pro uh, proclamation about this, and all the promises were made when Russia no longer controlled the territories of Poland because of German victories. Uh, following the uh, February Revolution, the Republican government of Russia very reluctantly agreed to a, an undefined independence for Poland. It expressed its hope that Poland would remain with Russia. Only the Bolsheviks, following their seizure of power, pretended that they bestow independence and sovereignty on the Commonwealth, but they immediately, they immediately clarified that they mean so-called proletarian sovereignty, aka the Sovietization of Poland, of Poland. Only the United States from 8th January 1918 unequivocally talked about independent Poland free with access to the sea. Very similar maneuvering concerned all other questions that the great powers struggled for. Their final shape could only emerge following the victory. The war was fought quite simply to decide how the world must be arranged. War preparations and strategic planning were a function of a broader political, social, economic, and cultural context from which the First World War grew. The ingredients of the conflict, which broke out in 1914, had been accumulating for a long time. Austro-Hungary feared serious internal problems which threatened the integrity of the empire. The, the authorities attempted to deal with the crisis in a variety of ways, including the transformation of dual monarchy into a triple monarchy, where the Slavic element was supposed to balance the Germanic and the Magyar ones. This policy meant 
among other things, to support the Ruthenian ingredient through the awakening and strengthening of Ukrainian nationalism in Galicia. Internally, this was contrary to Polish interests, and externally, it provoked Russia, which was busy destroying the Ukrainian element through, rep, uh, through political and cultural repressions, including Russification. Uh, this state of things contributed to a state of a permanent conflict between St. Petersburg and Vienna. Further, it was exacerbated by the quarrels between Austro-Hungary and Serbia. This wasn't only about the annexation of Bosnia-Herzegovina in 1908 by Vienna, by the Habsburgs, but also uh, because of the entire Balkan policy of the empire. As a, as a result, the Habsburg monarchy more and more became a system of institutionalized escapism and the chief benefit that it conferred on its subject was to exempt them from reality as a Marxist historian Norman Stone has noted rather acerbically. At any rate, all this caused Vienna to rely increasingly on Berlin as far as its foreign policy. First, by, by uh, referring to the dual alliance of 1879, then a triple alliance of 1882 with uh, Germany and the Kingdom of Italy. Gradually, the Second Reich would abandon the Bismarckian schema, a scheme of uh, an alliance with Tsarist Russia. Germany was choking in its borders. Germany felt surrounded and unfulfilled, thwarted in its imperial naval ambitions. Germany turned to railroad imperialism, hence its expansion through the Balkans and Constantinople all the way to Baghdad. Berlin demanded additional African colonies, admittance to the Middle East, and original domination, so-called Mittel Europa, and perhaps even, and perhaps even, living space, Leben, uh, Lebensraum, in a variety of forms, from uh, the spheres of um, economic influence all the way to the annexation of entire swaths of land in Eastern Europe. The Second Reich not only was afraid of the French Republic, which 
was hell-bent on revenge for the catastrophe of 1871, but also Great Britain, because the British Empire was blocking the expansionist plans of Germany, plans and practice of Germany. German fear was compounded by an alliance between London and Paris, so-called Entente Cordiale in 1904. Already earlier, France, through a series of um, agreements, tied itself to Russia, and a secret treaty between those countries meant full military cooperation that happened between 1891 and 1894. The British wanted to maintain and conserve their status quo as the greatest imperial power of the world. They soberly assessed all the threats, thus their rapprochement with France. <clears throat> it was more difficult with St. Petersburg. In Central Asia, the quarrel between Russia and England, the so-called great game, grew and festered throughout the entire 19th century. However, in 1907, both parties came to an agreement. They signed an appropriate convention, which also included military cooperation. The facto for backing out of demands in the Asian sphere of Great Britain, London gave St. Petersburg, in principle, a carte blanche in Central and Eastern Europe. In this way, France, Russia, and Great Britain formally became allies. St. Petersburg not only cast a covetous uh, eye on Galicia and other Habsburg territories populated by brother Slavs, but foremostly it desired Constantinople from Turkey. It wanted its own sphere of influence in the Middle East. The United States observed all these developments from the sidelines. But finally, in April 1917, it joined the war on the side of the Entente. This turned out to be a decisive move as far as the victory in the West. Earlier, Italy, in April 1915, and Romania in August 1916, joined Western allies despite their alliances with, uh, with the Central Powers. But Turkey, almost from the very beginning of the conflict, was uh, backed Germany and Austro-Hungary from October 1914. And very soon after, in October 1915, Bulgaria joined. This way, the powers of the Entente faced 
off with a quadruple alliance. The assassination of the heir to the throne of Austria-Hungary, Franz Ferdinand in Sarajevo in July 1914, served as a reason and excuse to launch World War I. When Serbia rejected the Habsburg ultimatum, Vienna sped up its mobilization. St. Petersburg confirmed its guarantees to Belgrade and began mobilizing its armies. And so did Berlin in support of Vienna. Similarly, Paris and London moved. In August 1914, in a technical sense, it was through a force of inertia that the war broke out. But the powers prepared for war, had prepared for war for a long time, although not all of them wanted the war. The Second Reich, for instance, believed that it would be best to fight early or as early as possible because with the passage of time, its Russian and French enemies would only strengthen them, their positions vis-a-vis -vis Berlin. As far as Germany is concerned, the most important thing was an attack on France, which launched World War I in practice. For a while there, uh, the uh, opponents fought a war of maneuver. The German armies, however, lost the race to outflank the French armies, which were soon supported by the English troops. In the fall of 1914, the front froze inside of France in the north on the Atlantic and in the south on essentially on the Swiss border. The war of attrition started in the west. Soon it became clear there would be no breakthrough. The reality of new war excluded a essentially any success of uh, all offensive strategies. New technologies of death, artillery, gas, machine guns, barbed wire, guaranteed the bankruptcy of old methods of fighting. For instance, cavalry almost entirely proved to be of no use in the West. Although in the East, it continued to be used. Faced by enemy troops in entrenched positions and spewing fire, there was no field of maneuver. 
there was no way to pierce the front. There was no way to capture or recapture larger uh, pieces of terrain. Successive offensive and counter um, offensive simply fell in the hell of steel. The military situation oscillated between the inertion of coexistence of enemy, military strikes or maybe rebellions, and senseless slaughter. A permanent freeze occurred in the trenches and forts on both sides. The, the basic and stark fact, nonetheless, was that the conditions of warfare between 1914 and 1918 were disposed towards slaughter and that only an entirely different technology, not one not available until a generation later, could have averted such an outcome. Already in 1915, both warring sides decided simply to kill as many of the opposing soldiers as possible to break the enemy's will to fight. Hence, repeated appeals of the Western allies to the Russians for continuous attacks against the armies of the Central Powers. Such operations were not intended only to weaken Germany and Austro-Hungary, but perhaps also to push their forces away from the borders of Russia, but and, and foremost, to force Berlin to shift its divisions and army corpses to the Western, uh, to the Eastern Front, thus helping France and Great Britain to conduct their struggle. Despite the fact that coordination of military uh, operations within the Entente left much to be desired, however, uh, the help of the Russian juggernaut for its allies was quite valuable until its ultimate collapse in the middle of 1917. We can blame the revolution and the Bolshevik putsch for this, but the truth is that the czarist military system turned out to be absolutely unready to the challenges of modern war. Ancient truths of Russian administration were thereby illustrated. Centra centralization brought inefficiency, 
Decentralization brought anarchy. These contradictions undermined the essence of the czarist system. Like most autocracies, its great strength was not that it governed harshly, but that it governed less. Simply, the czarist system, when it didn't feel threatened, it didn't totally interfere with, any, with, with everything. And, but now, total great war required a total reorientation of the system, which the czar and his government simply were incapable of achieving. From 1914, the Russian military experienced a number of serious problems, which within a few years would simply destroy the armed forces. Already at the very beginning, there was a mass slaughter of pre-war officers, NCOs, and professional soldiers. As a result, at the end of 1915, the old Tsarist, the old Russian army was no more. Further, the Moscovite suffered of chronic lack of ammunition and weapons at the front. Initially, this was due to bureaucratic corruption and the evil doing of financial elites, inefficiency of Russia's own industry, and limited supplies from abroad. In time, however, the ammunition supplies improved because of great exertions in particular as far as the workers are concerned, which eventually bore sad revolutionary fruit. Even, however, when the problem of proper supplying was solved within the next couple of years, in the back of the front, at the battlefield, Russian logistics were still inadequate and sometimes <clears throat> catastrophic. At least until 1916, unarmed and ununiformed unit would be sent to the front to, as reinforcements. They were expected to collect weapons and uniform from the wounded and the dead. In a few cases, raw recruits were, were thrown into battle, armed with grenades and clubs. The greatest problem, however, in, Russian, in the Russian armies, was the high leadership. This was, in fact, the greatest 
pathological flaw much greater than in any of the allied or opposing armies. The main headquarters at Stavka was incapable of commanding the entire war effort. It was hard pressed to attempt to coordinate operations between fronts, which for the most part operated independently. Norman Stone was right when he said when he uh, when he said that uh, the Tsarist army was not crippled by its inferiority of artillery or men. It was crippled by, the, by its inability to use its superiority. As a result, the Tsarist military almost invariably lost. The losses among Russian soldiers and officers were horrifying, much greater than in the ranks of their opponents. Millions perished at the front after three years of slaughter. And that was also one of the main reasons for the outbreak of the revolution in February 1917. In the East, World War I commenced in August 1914 from the Austro-Hungarian foray into uh, central Poland, the Celts and Lublin areas, which were controlled by Russia. But most of all, the showpiece of the Russian mobilization effort was the invasion of East Prussia. Even though on the Northern Front, the Tsarist armies were trounced at Tannenberg. In the South, the counteroffensive in Galicia brought them success. The Russians took Lvov and pushed the Austro-Hungarian armies into the Carpathians. Continuous disasters of Habsburg armies laid bare an increasingly weakening position of Vienna vis-a-vis -vis Berlin. Increasingly and more frequently, Austro-Hungary proved incapable to conduct an offensive war on its own without German help. It was precisely the German intervention in Galicia, which forced the Russians to retreat in the summer of 1915. To avoid outflanking, the Tsarist armies undertook the so-called Great Retreat. Tsarist Poland was evacuated. By the force of inertia, however, the Russian armies continued to uh, retreat eastwards. The Russians applied the tactics of a wasteland, scorched earth, 
Entire villages were put to the torch. Enterprises and various buildings were destroyed. Crowds of pe people were herded in front of the, of, of the uh, escaping Russian armies. Most of them were evacuated under duress. German, uh, the Germans and Austro-Hungarians simply were incapable for logistical reasons uh, to catch up with, uh, uh, with the retreating Russians who were quite skilled at retreat, it turned out. There were a few larger battles mostly in Volhynia, generally, however, despite the fact that Austro-Hungarian armies helped, the success in Volhynia, as well as anywhere else, reflected the great valor of the German army. German guns did not strew shells around in the Austro-Hungarian manner in the, in the vague hope of awakening an impression of unconquerable might in enemy breasts, nor did they in the Russian manner disdain their own infantry as a worthless mob, hideously blundering into the skilled tournaments of, the, of their batters. German preparations on the field were also superior since the Germans did not refrain from digging extensively. In early autumn 1915, the front stopped on the Baltic in the north. And it continued in a straight line southwards, leaving on the western side Latvia, Kovno area, Vilno area, Hinsk area, Volhynia and Ukrainian lands, all the way to the Romanian border in the Carpathians. The Russians were, uh, Russia was unable to change the situation even despite magnificently condu conducted at the tactical and operational levels offensive by General Alexei Brasilov in the summer of 1916. The Ukrainian front in, in, in the Ukraine fell, I mean, the, 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 the Austrian front in the Ukraine fell under the Russian blows, but the German counteroffensive restored the military status quo ante. As a result, the blow, the blow to the Austrian morale was irreparable. From now on, Austrian troops fought with an ineradicable sense of inferiority and the loss of positions which had been universally thought impregnable led to a deep disbelief in commanders and in fortifications of all kinds. From now on, the Austrian army was useful only in so far as it could be joined with German troops, which happened increasingly 
even to the degree that companies of Austrian and German troops were joined to make, make mixed battalion. It is probably not an exaggeration to state that the Austrian army survived now by the great, by the grace of the Prussian sergeant major. So speaks Norman Stone. General, General Erich Ludendorff, one of the leading German commanders, was even more outspoken in his report of July 17th, 1916. He noted, the Austrians do not cease to behave like swine. Their troops do not hold any longer as the sad events of the last days have proved. My eye turns again to the Poles. The Pole is a good soldier. If Austria fails, then we must provide new forces for ourselves. Let us create a Grand Duchy of Poland with Warsaw and Lublin and then a Polish army under German command. During the running battles and counterattacks of 1916, but not 1917, there was a whole bunch of atrocities and acts of violence and murder. The sad distinction in this morbid business belongs to the Tsarist armies, whose main victims tended to be Jewish civilians. The Habsburg armies mostly focused on Moscolophilic Ruthenians. Military Prussian forces concentrated their anger on the Poles. At any rate, by the middle of, of 1916s, the armies of Berlin and Vienna had occupied most of the terrain of the old Commonwealth in the East. The Germanic empires ruled the intermarium, the lands between the Black and Baltic seas. The German power stabilized the front. Practically, there were no serious battles throughout 1917, except uh, a pathetic offensive during the summer of this year. At most, both sides would use artillery to shoot at each other. One of the uh, contemporary one of the contemporary observers and researchers um, has stated that German occupiers faced in these conquered territories a past into which they could not effectively insinuate themselves while the region's dense tangle of living historical associations denied the conquerors a place. There were also instances of increasing fraternization on the front because in February 1917, a revolution broke out in Russia. The monarch abdicated, a republic was proclaimed. It was in a suicidal manner, subject to dual power of the Soviet and of the provisional government. The revolutionaries of various ilk in control of the Soviets 
did not want to strike a deal with uh, progressives and liberals controlling the provisional government. Both sides, however, in Concord, undertook the dismantling of the state structure, uh, structures of the Tsarist empire. One of the first moves was to dissolve the police and fire provincial governors. Law was liberalized, liberalized to a maximum, including the abolishment of, death, of the death penalty uh, in the military as well. The country descended into anarchy. The Bolsheviks were able to take care of the situation. Their leader, Vladimir Lenin, called for robbing of that which was robbed. He encouraged universal chaos, robbery, arson, and, mur and murder. Next, wielding a false slogan of peace, bread, and land, the communists took over power in November 1917. As a result of their coup d'etat, they overthrew the liberal government of Alexander Kerensky and undertook the implementation of communism. Russia blew up, fighting commenced, and so did the civil war. The, the Germans fully took advantage of Russia's tragedy, tragedy. Until the Bolshevik takeover, the situation on the Eastern Front remained more or less stable. Nothing could change it, not even the so-called Kerensky offensive of the summer of 1916, 17. After the initial success of the offensive, their attack was halted and thrown back. Their armies collapsed. As a result, the Russian offensive led, in fact, to an almost complete disintegration of the Russian army. which had been under the influence of a wave of revolutionary chaos and had by the summer of 1917 degenerated beyond repair. Mass, mass desertions, fraternization, which was ordered from above by the German command, to weaken the spirit and will to fight, as well as an absolute disappearance of discipline, caused the Russian armies to stop their existence as a viable fighting force. The Germans looked on with satisfaction at the developments of the situation on the Eastern Front 
because their aim was still to conclude a separate peace with Russia and not a conquest and partition of that country. Together with uh, Vienna, the armies of Berlin also moved in the Balkans. Formerly, uh, in, in, the, in the fall of 1915, together with Sofia, they defeated Serbia and, re and they reached the, uh, the, the Adriatic. Following the unfortunate joining of the war by Bucharest on the side of the Entente in 1916, Romania was gradually conquered. She was forced to sign a separate peace in May 1918, and, he was, she, and uh, she was um, uh, subject to occupation and exploitation. The Romanian governments continued to exist on a patch of land with a temporary provisional capital in Yasse. Uh, almost as an afterthought, taking advantage of the chaos of the revolution and civil war in the empire of the Romanovs, Romania incorporated a majority of Romanian language territories of Bessarabia, which in the second half of the 19th century, Russia had conquered from Turkey. This was done naturally with um, Germany's blessings. Earlier, Germany began, began creating satellite entities in the East, in particular Lithuania, which was supposed to be a puppet creation of Berlin. The ideas of, about Lithuania oscillated between incorporation to the Second Reich and creating a, a separate state with a, a German monarch. The Germans even allowed to create for the Lithuanians an embryonic representative body called the Tariba. It's characteristic that in this council, there was not a single peasant, and Lithuania was, after all, a peasant nation. Lithuanian leaders were very useful from the point of view of the German authorities. Their basic role was to checkmate Poland. While the Lithuanian Tariba pretended to completely ignore the fact that the country they claimed to represent was multinational, the German ministers and generals did not ignore the important problem of the Lithuanian Poles. All of this would come to the head at the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. And we will talk about it perhaps next time when we see each other. Thank you very much. I would like to thank Dr. Hodakevich and all of you who tuned in. If you're interested in attending other upcoming events, supporting IWP, or applying to one of our graduate programs, please go to iwp.edu. Again, that's iwp.edu. Thank you.